verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over, and he came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. God, I pray that you help us this morning to see that you have come to call not the righteous, but the sinners. And Father, that indeed no one is good enough to save themselves. So I pray, Father, that that would be what we take from here and it would cause us to turn all the more in trust of your Son, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> Joe is the star football player at Wellington High School. He's had several offers from Division I colleges. He's also uh, number one in his class. Not only that, but he is a faithful attender to the youth group. He comes on Wednesday nights and he comes on Sunday mornings. He's a, he's a good boy. This is a good young man. He says, yes, ma'am. He says, no, ma'am. So far as we know, he's a good, clean Christian kid. <coughs> You'd expect this because his parents are well known at the church and in the community. Maybe he does just come because they make him, but at least he's there. There are countless others that are sleeping in. Jill, she's the female version of Joe. She's just like him. She's the captain of the cheerleading squad. She's point guard for the basketball team. She's a straight-A student. <coughs> Even though she's a junior... Everyone knows that next year she will be homecoming queen. It's just not even up for de- debate at this point. She goes to another church in town, but, but she is also a faithful tender there on Sundays, there on Wednesdays. She is pristine, and she is very polished. See, not only are Joe and Jill spectacular, their parents are um, the most well-known and well-respected people in their church and their community. They have money, they have integrity, they have charisma, and they're really sarcastic, which is what I'm told, a very good quality to have if you're going to be well-known in this West Texas culture. Well, you can imagine the surprise on their parents' faces 
and the feelings of betrayal that come over their, their parents and the feeling of embarrassment that comes upon these parents when, when they come home to, these, to Joe sitting there and, and, and he tells his parents that, he, that Jill is pregnant. After a drunken night at a party at a friend's house, when their parents are out of town, Jill is pregnant. See, the illusion's gone now. The perfect-looking family that they'd built is now, very clearly, it was just a house of cards. Now, all of a sudden, that house of cards has fallen in just a moment. Everyone is clearly aware uh, that their perceived goodness was merely that. It was just a perception. It was an illusion. It seemed as though their family had it all together. The sins of their children, and yes, even their own sins, were, were now out in the open. Their perfect image had been marred. Their sins were on display. They were posted on a billboard for all to see because you can't hide pregnancy for very long. And everyone would know the family is not as polished as they might have been seen to be. See, this is not too far from what's going on here in this, in this passage. It's not too far off with what's going on with the paralytic here. There there would have been many people at this time who would have had a common understanding that the man who's paralyzed, the one who has this physical ailment, may have been placed this way as a punishment by God. So, So in other words, his paralysis is communicating something to everyone. It's communicating that he's a sinner. See, we see this in John chapter 9. A group of people come up to Jesus, and this group of people come to say to Jesus about this, this blind man, and they say to him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? The idea is that this blindness or this paralysis is a result of sin in, in their life. Now, now here's the thing: Jesus doesn't, when he's pressed on the issue, he doesn't agree. With this, he says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. So, so it's, we can't say that Jesus necessarily agrees with this, but he is certainly aware of the problem. He's, under, he's aware of, of this analysis that the community would have had about this paralyzed man. They would look at him and they would think, this man is a sinner so, so bad that God's punishing him. With this paralysis. There was then some embarrassment, wasn't there? There was some embarrassment with being a paralytic in the first century. It was an embarrassment that extended far beyond his physical inability and his physical uh, in, uh, efforts and his physical uh, body that has been completely marred by this disease. There's an embarrassment that extends far beyond that. The embarrassment is that it's, it's, it's his corrupt heart is being put on display for all of the community and all of the world to see, just like Joe and Jill in our story. Sure, maybe nobody said it to your face if you're a paraplegic, but, but as a paraplegic in the first century, you knew it. You didn't have to have it said to you. You knew. 
You knew there were some who assumed that you were virtually lifeless due to your, your sin, some egregious sin that you've committed. Everyone knew you as a sinner. And at the same time, you knew that everybody else was basing their righteousness and their status and their, their, their personal position in life based upon the fact that, hey, at least paralysis hasn't gotten me here. There's, there's a sense in which I'm, I'm righteous because at least... My family is not like that family who has that child who evidently they've caused some kind of egregious physical calamity to come upon him. So there are two people in this story. Two kinds of people. There's a paraplegic who is clearly in the eyes of those around him a sinner. And there are Pharisees. There are those who clearly in the eyes of those around them are righteous, healthy-looking people. But what we see in this story is that it's the Pharisees, not the paralytic, that are the most helpless individuals on the stage. So let's set this up just a little bit further. I want to, I want to draw our attention back to a quote that I, that I read last week. And I just want to make sure that we get this because I think it's very, uh, very um, informative of the text that we're in here. There's an old Presbyterian minister who pondered what would happen if Satan took over an entire city. His city was Philadelphia. Our city is Wellington. The location does not matter. He says this. He says all of the bars would be closed. Pornography banished. Pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. See, this illustrates, I think, very well the danger that this text is trying to communicate to us this morning. It's trying to shine a light on the tendency of every human heart to fool ourselves into thinking that we may have a righteousness of our own. And see, not only that, but it's shining a, a light on our tendency uh, as, as, as those who are prone to Phariseeism also to raise other Pharisees. And so our, our, this tendency to righteousness and a righteousness that is our own causes us sometimes to even raise children and to raise communities that will also seek a righteousness of their own. And he's shining a light on this, it's the tendency that we have as parents. Remember back when, when our children uh, would do Halloween, we would dress them up once a year, and Halloween is incredibly fun, but it serves as a poor policy for life. We help them put on their costumes and let them pretend to be something that they are not for a little bit. A couple of years ago, Abigail was the homecoming queen, Nathan the football player, and Luke was the football. <laughs> I love Halloween. This may be fun, but it's a terrible approach to life. See, we must be careful with our own hearts and in the way that we raise our children not to play a prolonged game of, of dress up, teaching them to look like something that Scripture says very clearly that they are not. 
by nature. Disguises may be fun, but they make poor long-term strategies for approaching a holy God. And so by all accounts of the culture of the day, here lied the paralytic, stripped of his disguise. No costume, nothing. He could not hide his depravity. He was, of course, incapable of bringing himself before Jesus. He he needed the assistance of these individuals to to help him come to Jesus. And and when they placed his bed there, uh, right in front of the feet of Jesus, the text says that Jesus saw their faith and he turned to the paralytic and he says something that would have completely quieted the murmuring crowd that had gathered around him. He says, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. You could almost feel the air leave the room at that moment. Here was this man whose obvious problem was that he couldn't walk. And Jesus claims to do something for him, something that is completely invisible. He, by all accounts... If you ask anyone, he did something visible. The result of healing in his life should be something that is verifiable. People who can't walk, everybody knows this, people who can't walk get their miracles whenever they leave that miracle walking. That's what the miracle looks like for a paraplegic. But Jesus says something that if there, were, if there were no guilt in this man's heart, if there were no condemnation in this man's heart, he says something that would have been incredibly offensive. It would have looked like he was even making fun of the guy. Not only that, but he does something that could in no way be verified, something that was only evidenced by the words he had just spoken. Here is this man to who, to who the eyes of all the outsiders needed life in his limbs. And Jesus appears to ignore this problem. He speaks straight to the man's heart. He seems completely unaware of the fact that the man hasn't fed himself, dressed himself, or bathed himself in years. And he speaks to the man's heart. Remember, this is a man who lives in a culture that would have associated his paralysis with being essentially punished by God as a result of his sin or his parents' sin. But Jesus, when he views the paralytic, he does not see a man who could use some assistance with his physical body. He sees a man who is ripe and ready for the kingdom of God. A man who is exactly the type of candidate he came to minister to. A man who is exactly the type of person he's looking to make a member of the family of God. Why? What is it that he sees here in this man? I would suggest to you this. He knew that the man would have probably, based upon the fact that others assumed that his sin had led to this paralysis, he would have been constantly reminded Everywhere he went of his condemnation, the reality of his sinfulness in his mind had been put on the billboard for everyone to see 
in his lifeless limbs, in his inability to do anything for himself. And as they carried him down the streets, as eyes ogled him, as he recalled the, the old words of his family and the old words of his friends, he would have felt very heavily the condemnation of a, of a community that looked down upon him. And he would have felt, in a sense, the condemnation of God. They would not have let him forgive it. He did not have the luxury of pretending like he was righteous. He didn't have it. The culture would have pegged him as unrighteous. He could only helplessly lay in the judgment and condemnation of God. But Jesus sees a man who is precisely the type of man he came to do ministry to. You see, our our young children at the first of this, right? Joe and Jill, they are are not in our minds, they are not in an enviable position, are they? Their sin's been discovered. They have been found out. Not only have they been found out, they have been found out by a community that places its own pride in its cleanness and in its righteousness conversations are now being held behind their backs and their their tendency for their parents in the situation must be okay how do we hide this or how do we dull it do we do we go out and we just stop talking about it or we go out and we do we just go out and brag to the community about the discipline that we're placing upon them so that we can somehow suppress this and win the face of our our family back in the eyes of all of the of the community, and the natural tendency for parents in this situation is to create an illusion that our children are by nature good. Joe and Jill, though, they know deep down in their hearts that what has now been revealed is only a fraction of what their hearts are capable of. They know their hearts. And what we will see is that just as it is in the case with the paralytic, these children are the ones who are in the best position to receive the mercy of God. Those who are aware of their sin, aware of their need for forgiveness, aware of their need for salvation, are precisely the ones for whom the kingdom of God has come. And there are times in our lives whenever, whenever we're more aware of our sins than others, aren't there? And there are times as parents, I, I know, I'm learning this all too well, that we're more aware of the sins of our children than there are others. And so we would have to be careful that we would not make ourselves fools and try to convince ourselves in our sin or to convince ourselves in our children's sins into thinking that they're, they're justifiable and somehow making them easier for us to swallow, to try to explain them away. We have to take these moments, in short. We have to take these moments and say, my only hope is in Christ. My heart wonders I am prone to all kinds of evil. My children are prone to all kinds of evil. Lord, save me here in this. Look upon my iniquities. Look upon my sin and forgive me. Because what we'll see 
is that if we claim to be without a problem, we will miss the kingdom of heaven. It's the whole point of this text. We will identify in the story not with the man whose sins are forgiven, but with the Pharisees who called Jesus a blasphemer. Because he's claiming to do something invisible here, isn't he? He's claiming to do something unverifiable. And when he makes this claim, he's claiming to do something that's divine. He's claiming to take a prerogative that only belongs to God and to God alone and to assume it. And he's essentially saying, I can forgive your sins that you've committed against God, namely because I am God. I'm the one sinned against. These Pharisees, see, they they knew when Jesus said this that they had read Psalm 51 against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. And they also may have known Isaiah's. He says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. They understand that sin is an offense against this holy God and that the only one that could forgive them of these sins is that holy God. So they are right whenever they look to Jesus and they say he is claiming to take on something that only belongs to God. He must be a blasphemer. You see, he's not just trying to make the paralyzed man feel better here. He's not just trying to to help him cope with a lifelong, lifetime full of condemnation. He's not just building up the young man's self-esteem here. He's claiming to be removing the condemnation altogether. He's claiming to be bringing in this new covenant that God has for him. So when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, he's making a claim about his personhood that the Pharisees would have recognized as a king who's laying claim to what belonged to God alone. And while these guys painted in the best light, these Pharisees, we may have thought, okay, maybe they're protecting the holiness of God. But what Jesus is saying is that you have evil in your hearts. Why do you have such evil in your hearts? Because on a moral level, they had missed the fact that while they were protecting this holy God, they were missing the fact that the holiness of God is what stood before them and spoke to the sins of the man. And so Jesus knows this. He knows exactly what's going on in their hearts. And he says to them, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk? And so we might ask, right? We might ask in this position, okay, which one is easier to say? It's easier, obviously, to say something that you cannot verify. It's easier to say something that cannot be backed up. I do not know if any of you knew this or not, but I have the ability to create invisible unicorns. Seriously. There has been an invisible unicorn standing right here the entire time, and none of you knew that. I'm the only one that can see him. You're going to be shocked in a moment when I jump on that thing and ride it out the back of the sanctuary. You see how this works. 
It's easy to say something that cannot be verified. It's easy to say something that cannot be proven. So what Jesus knows, he's aware of this problem here, isn't he? He's aware that they're doubting him because you can't see it. So what does he do? He says this in verse 6. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. See, he does this to demonstrate his authority. He is sovereign over wind and waves, we have seen. He is sovereign over demons, we have seen. He is sovereign over paralysis, he has seen. And he is sovereign over the forgiving hand of God. He controls all nature and all diseases. And he controls how the mercy of God is dispensed. He is completely authoritative and the one the actor on the stage that gets the mercy of God is the one who looks not polished and pristine and righteous he's the one who cannot lift a finger because here's the thing in the next section he makes it very clear that he's talking about sinners. Look with me in this next, next section. In verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at a table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Because he goes from here and he goes to a man named Matthew, a tax collector, who makes his living, by the way, by ripping people off. He goes and he reclines at a table with this shyster, Matthew. And then he goes and he sits down with a whole bunch of other shysters and sinners. See, it's the same thing here, right? Matthew wants to make it clear that these people that Jesus has come to here are pathetic that Jesus is associating with. And of course, when the Pharisees saw this, they turned to Jesus, turned to the disciples of Jesus, and they say, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And listen very closely, listen very closely to Jesus' response, because he's, 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 he's helping us interpret this, this issue with the, the, the paraplegic in the verses before. Listen very closely. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. You see, he picks the paralytic to illustrate that the paralyzed man is not the most helpless man in the room. It's the one who thinks he's righteous. To put it this way, if these righteous people 
who are so proud of their deeds, went down to the nursing home this afternoon. They would pass by with their heads held high, individual after individual, bound to a wheelchair. And what Jesus is saying is that the most weak, most pathetic creature in that hallway is not the one being fed by the nurse. It's not the one who needs help with the shower. The weakest, most pathetic person in the room is the one who claims to be healthy, looks healthy, does a whole bunch of healthy looking things, but is on the inside a spiritual, lifeless paralytic. This is why he will say to them in Matthew 23, Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-righteousness. See, Jesus is trying to alert us here to a problem, a natural problem with every single human heart. He's giving us a grid to place over the world and to interpret the world through. He's giving us a grid to place over the hearts of ourselves, the hearts of our children, the hearts of all of humanity. And he's he's giving us this, this warning. He's saying, please be careful, he would say. Be careful that you are you're not like those Pharisees who, who see themselves more righteous than the paralyzed man. Be careful that you understand your need for God of the heavens to look down upon you and pardon you precisely because you are by nature unrighteous. That's our need. Be careful that you don't see yourself any other way as those who need the pardon and the mercy of Almighty God. You see, Joe and Jill's parents at the first of this might have asked, how do, we, how do we hide this? How do we get our son to clean up his act? How can we get our daughter to understand that she is not engaging in conduct that is, that is becoming of a young lady? And what Jesus is telling us is that we are asking the wrong question. The question is not how can we clean them up a bit to save them embarrassment? Or how can we make them a little less self-destructive so that they won't face too many difficulties in life? No, the question is how do we get them to see that if left to themselves, they will never be able to clean themselves up enough? That embarrassment is not the problem, that alienation from God is the problem. How do we get them to see that the problem with sin is not that it just makes life hard and that it can have life-altering ramifications for you and for your status in the community and your ability to get a promotion at work or even for your family, but that the problem with sin is that it finds you at odds with the king. The problem with sin is that it separates us from living for what we were created to live for and that it's the glory of God in the face of God. Of Jesus Christ. How do we get them to see their tremendous need for Jesus to turn to them in their paralysis and say, like Jesus says here, take heart, my children. I know in this sin you're losing heart here. I understand the condemnation that you may feel. Take heart, children. Turn to Christ and your sins are forgiven you. 
And how do we get ourselves to turn to our own hearts and say to our own hearts, take heart. I know your temptation at the moment is is to lose heart because of your sin, because of the condemnation that you feel because of that sin. How do we turn to our own hearts and say to our own hearts, trust in Christ. Your sins are forgiven you. See, the hope of the paralytic is the hope of our children, and it's the hope for us. For he did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. But let me just say that the good news here, too, is that the joy of salvation is that you may be in your 40th year as a believer. You have not graduated from this, and you never will. This is not a message just for baby Christians or non-Christians. This is a message for even the most seasoned believer among us. We are, like the song says, prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And our prayer must be, here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We must be nothing but the formally paralyzed, prone to fall back into our paralysis, but rejoicing in the fact that a doctor has come, that Jesus has come, and he has come not for those who are so healthy and good that they need no treatment, but he has come for those who in the depths of their own hearts know their depravity and rejoice and come alive in hearing only one phrase. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven you. Let's pray. God, I pray for us that we would find unbelievable, indescribable joy in knowing that you have come to save not the righteous, but the sinners. That if you had come to save the righteous, none of us would even come close measuring up. But you came to save those who could do nothing for themselves. And God, for that, we are grateful. For that, we worship. For that, we gather together. And God, may that grace, that mercy, ooze from every part of who we are. In your son's name that we pray. Amen. Would you all stand with me as we sing that?